0: Welcome to the Susquehanna Valley Baptist Pulpit. Preaching a life worth living, abundant life in Christ. And now the message. The book of Zechariah and a chapter number 4. Zechariah chapter 4. It's good to be back and uh, to be with you this evening. And uh, it's a good crowd. Good to see you tonight. And uh, looking forward to the Lord touching us and helping us and ministering to us this evening. And I, I, I pray the Lord's hand and His touch will be upon all of us tonight and give us what we have need of. I need the Lord's help this evening, and I'm assuming that you do too. And I'm really looking for the Lord touching us and giving us direction and giving us leadership here tonight. Uh, It's good to see Brother Allison. I haven't seen him, and we were talking a while ago. It's probably been about 27 years since we've seen one another. When I first moved into the area to pastor uh, that was not far away from where... He was there in in uh, in Alabama. Uh, I was just really a young fella. I was fairly fairly young. Had a young family. I had just gotten right with God. Hadn't been right with God an awfully long time. And the Lord had called us to preach. I was in business. I was managing money for a subsidiary Ford Motor Company. And and my job had transferred me to the area. And just by the uh, the direction and uh, leadership of the Lord, the Lord allowed us to. Uh, pastor a church there in Columbia, Tennessee. I'm not sure if I pastored them or pastored them, but I was there for just a short time, about five years, and then I went back to East Tennessee. My dad uh, pastored the same church in East Tennessee for 40 years, and I was able to go back and work with him for about six, and then left there in 2001, and I went, uh, went to a a uh, little uh, bedroom community of Charlotte, North Carolina, called Monroe, and I've been pastoring there at the Galilee Baptist Church for well since 2001. So we've been there; we're in our 22nd year, I think, there at the church. And the Lord's blessed, and we're very grateful. The Lord's been awfully kind to us, and and we've reared our family there, and and all of our children are grown, and and the Lord's blessed with a slew of grandchildren, and we're just uh, a blessed people, and been able to come full circle. And I can stand today and say it's, it is uh, it, it is worth staying with it. There have been many times I felt like kicking out and giving up and going back to business and just you know doing what I knew to do. Um, but I'll be honest with you, I am very grateful that the Lord has graced us and blessed us to stay uh, steadfast and unmovable, abounding in the work of the Lord. It's it's worth it. It truly is worth and I, I'm with Pastor Allison you're not going to you're not going to get out of this life unscathed. You're going to be hurt and maimed along the way and, but I want you to understand it's not just the people of God that deal with difficulties, even sinners deal with difficulties. We just might as well help help our heart to understand that God is going to aid us and assist us through all of this if we'll just keep our heart and life right with God and keep submitted to Him, it, God will bless us, and He'll help us along the way. Uh, Pastor Allison probably did not know this, but when we had left Tennessee, went back uh, to, or went, left where we were, went back to East Tennessee, uh, my wife uh, came down with cancer. And I looked back at our life at that time, and boy, it sure didn't look like we were going to make it. Five children, little old bitty children, a wife with cancer. But you know, God brought us through all that. And He has a way of ministering His grace to us and help to us. But what I have found, church, is that a lot of people enjoy their pain. They just enjoy feeling bad. I have found that over and over again. And I have said to our church, do not let your pain become your pacifier. Because if you let your pain become your pacifier, you're never going to live in victory. And I just just don't want to live there. I don't want to stay there. I counsel. That's one of the jobs that I do, and I counsel every week of my life, nearly every day of my life. I'm in a counseling session with somebody from around the United States of America, oftentimes in the office, a lot of times by phone or some other means we'll, we'll counsel. And one of the things that I found about counseling people, the majority of the people you counsel do not want any help because they don't want to deal with what the preacher was talking about. They don't want to deal with the truth of where they're at. I'm Seeing a man I've been working with for over 10 years, he's just now starting to get it. And God's beginning to do a work in his life. Been in church for the last couple of weeks and I'm just so grateful. But it's amazing how long it takes some people to finally come to the truth that living in this mess in my mind is simply not worth it. And it really isn't. Now tonight we're going to be starting just a little series, if the Lord will help us, in the book of Zechariah. And chapter number 4. And there will be several places in the Word of God. But I want to start by giving you the text, if I may. We're dealing with the prophecy of Zechariah to Ezra and to Zerubbabel as they are on their way back after Babylonian and then Media-Persian captivity headed back to rebuild the temple. And as they're going back, we're going to see... A a load of things that I think are beneficial to us to help us along the way. I just simply want to give you two words in regard to what I want to cover in these days together. I just simply want to talk about small things. I just want to talk about little things. Let's begin in verse 1. The Bible said, And the angel that talked with me came again and waked me as a man that's waked out of his sleep. And he said, he said unto me, What seest thou? And I said, I've looked, and behold, a candlestick, all of gold, with a bowl upon the top of it, and his seven lamps thereon, seven pipes to the seven lamps, which are upon the top thereof, and two olive trees by it, one upon the right side of the bowl, and the other upon the left side thereof. So I... Answered and spake to the angel that talked with me, saying, What are these, my Lord? And the angel that talked with me answered and said unto me, Knowest thou not what these be? And I said, No, my Lord. And then he answered and said and spake unto me, saying, This is the word of the Lord unto Zerubbabel. Now, just to kind of give you an idea, Zerubbabel is the he is the head of the building project of the building of the temple. And as he's going to be building this temple, God is sending to Zechariah a message specifically to give to Zechariah, a Zerubbabel, who has about 42,000 workers with him. And he's going to give him this message about encouraging him in what he's going to be doing, because he's going to be facing a lot of discouragement in the task that he has been tasked to do by God. Now he said, give give this message to Zerubbabel, and this is what I want you to tell him. You tell him, it's not by might, and it's not by power, but it is by my Spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. He goes on in verse 7 to say this, Who art thou? Let's remember he didn't say, what art thou? He said, who art thou? O great mountain before Zerubbabel, thou shalt become a plain, and he shall bring forth the headstone thereof with shoutings, crying, Grace, grace unto it. Moreover, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house, and his hands shall also finish it. And thou shalt know that the Lord of hosts hath sent me unto you. Now, I I do not want to read the entirety of verse 10. I want to read the first phrase, which is a question. For who hath despised the day of small things? For who hath despised the day of small things? Pray with and for me if you would. And let me just share my heart with you tonight. Father in heaven, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we want to come to you and bow. I thank you, Lord, for uh, the Word of God that has been shared with our hearts already tonight. I appreciate, Lord, Brother Starnes and the church and what you are doing in this place. And I ask you, dear Lord, to give them their heart's desire for the glory of our Lord's Christ. I pray, Lord, tonight that you touch our heart and our mind, fill us with the Holy Spirit of God. Lord, to be able to give the Word of God in plain truth, we pray. Lord, thank You for loving us. And thank You, kind sir, for saving our never-dying soul from hell. Lord, I ask You to bless us now, in Jesus' name, amen and amen. As we begin to plot our way through our thought tonight, I want to just kind of give you the idea Here you find this man by the name of Zechariah. He is the 11th of the 12 minor prophets. And as he is speaking, he's speaking somewhere in the neighborhood of about 500 years before the birth of Christ. And it is as the, uh, the, the men, 42 plus thousand of them, are headed back specifically for the purpose of the rebuilding of the temple. Now keep in mind that the temple as it was, in the day of Solomon, was built as a very luxurious structure. It was filled with gold and silver was of no real accounting in that day because the gold was so plenteous. David had made provision. Solomon had taken the plans that had been laid and he built this glorious and luxurious temple. Men and women came from all over the world to see its grandeur and its glory. Now along the way there had been many of the kings that had had ripped off the house of God. There had been many including Hezekiah that, uh, uh, that the preacher referred to a while ago who had stripped the gold from the house of God and had given it away. Now the individuals that we're going to see in this chapter who are going to look with disdain upon the building of Zechariah in this new temple did not see the temple in its greatest grandeur they had seen it after it had been even stripped of many of the ornaments and the gold from that temple but here is Zechariah giving Zerubbabel a message message is you're going to do something for me and you're going to do something for me on a small scale You're going to do something for me that in the eyes of many is not going to amount to a whole lot. But what I want to encourage your heart in is that it doesn't matter how other people view the work that you're doing. And it doesn't matter what other people have an idea of in regard to what they think God's work for you is. I have a specific plan for your life. And the plan that I have for you, Zerubbabel, is not to do something with great grandeur, but to just obey me in a small thing. And many will view it with disdain, but I, as God, will view it as a glorious thing that my grace is upon because you have been obedient to me in the little things. One of the things that I have found in religion And I I remember when I first got into the ministry back in the early 90's there was these grand pushes for bigness and greatness and you could go to a How to Do It seminar or any place you could find one and everybody would flood in there specifically for the purpose of getting big and knowing how to do things successfully. And it took me a long time coming from a business perspective which that was really our motto find out the biggest, best way to be big. It took me a long time to finally get to the place and point of realizing that there are, that most of us in churches, and most of us as Christians, and most of us as preachers are just going to hoe out our little cornrow in just a little portion of the kingdom of our Lord and we're going to do something with what God gives us, either we're going to give our best to it for the Master regardless of its size or we're going to flop and fail regardless of its size. And we're going to have to realize that if our motivation is not the glory of God then our motivation is wrong. Now, with that being said, small things, God has given us a large list of them that He uses. In my studies, I was studying about crusades. And one of the things that I studied about from various denominations, various periodicals, some of them from a Christian perspective, others of them from a secular perspective, is that the vast majority of crusade evangelism winds up as dismal failures within the first 365 days. The vast majority of every study, be it spiritual or secular, states to us that 90 to 95% of all professions of faith made in large crusades cannot be found in the house of God in one year or less. And so I began to scratch my head about that and began to think about it. I was reading behind Leighton Ford who helped Billy Graham in the Billy Graham Association and with his crusade work. Leighton Ford would go ahead of Graham and do some preliminary preaching in a lot of the crusade towns that they would be going to. And Leighton Ford said that he was preaching one night and giving the gospel. And as he was giving the gospel, Billy Graham had came in a little late. And he came in and was sitting on the grounds with the people and he had disguised himself as to not be seen or not to be recognized. And Leighton Ford said that that, uh, he noticed a man seemingly was a little bit disturbed about his soul at the preaching of the gospel and he hadn't moved. And Graham said, I moved up beside of him and said, Sir, wouldn't you like to go forward and wouldn't you like to be saved? To which the man responded, he said, uh, not tonight, I'm waiting on the big guns to get here tomorrow. Now that gives us an idea of the disconnect that we have had about salvation and the importance of the doctrine of salvation in the Word of God. And that disconnect has come through religion and religiosity and how it views and understands biblical salvation. Now, all of that being said, the the greatest work that God does is He does it through people who no one knows doing the will of God for their life in the place God has put them. Very few people know who you are and know where you are. Everyone knowing who you are and where you are is not as important as you being all you can be where you are for one purpose and that is the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now that being said the word small as is used in the Bible is used 200 or used 97 times in the Bible. The word little is used 242 times in the Bible. And when you begin to look at how God works and operates He does the vast majority of His work with small things. Consider the plagues on the nation of Egypt. The Lord used small frogs and small lice and small flies. He used a small cord out of Rahab's window for her salvation. He used small hornets to drive the Canaanites out of the land. God has always done His grandest work with the smallest of things, even in creation. Let's give it a consideration if you would. The Bible said, In the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. The earth was without form and void and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And God said, and there it was. And the evening and the morning were the first day. And God said, and there it was. In other words, the grandeur of creation the glory of it and its immenseness and the, uh, just the very nature of it uh, it is all spoken by a simple word. In other words, God did a great thing with just a small thing. Now you've got your Bible there in hand. I want you to go to Proverbs chapter 30 and I may have shared some of this with us on last year, but I want to go over to Proverbs chapter number 30 and I don't want to run through this if I may. Uh, Solomon speaks specifically about some small things in Proverbs chapter number 30. Note with me, if you would, in verse 24. He said in verse 24 uh, that there's four things that are little upon the earth, but they're exceeding wise. He said in verse 25 of chapter 30 that the ants are a people. Uh, not, not, they're not strong yet they prepare their meat in the summer. Then he makes this statement, "...the conies are but a feeble folk, yet make they their houses in the rocks." Verse 37, "...the locusts, they have no no king, yet go they forth all of them by bands." And then in verse 28, "...the spider taketh hold with her hands, and is in king's palaces." In these five verses of Scripture, the Lord, through the writing of Solomon, gives us a real outline on what to do though we are small and insignificant in the greatness of this world. We're just small, but what can we do to continue on though we are small? He starts by using the ant. He says in verse number 25, the ant, they're they're not a strong people. They're very tiny. There's not much to them but they thrive and they survive. And he said they do this because they prepare their meat in the summer. Here's what he's saying. They make the most of what God created them to be by preparing themselves to be all God prepared them to be. I'm not Dr. Allison and I don't have the ability to do that. I'm not Brother Starnes and I don't, have his winsomeness and his personality. I don't have all of those things in my repertoire of who I am as an individual. But I do tell you what I have, I I do do have a backbone that I can do something about and and I do have a little bit of ability to communicate and I I do have a love for the Word of God. I do have a love for prayer. I do have a love for the Lord. And if I'm going to make the most out of the smallness of who I am, In the little place where I serve, I live in a community of 3,000 people. If I am going to make the most out of my small place, I'm going to have to prepare myself to do so. If I don't prepare myself, then nothing's ever going to come of who and what I am. Number two, he uses the coney. The coney is an interesting creature. It has the feet of an... Uh, it has the feet of an elephant and it has the it has the the body of a little rat, and it looks like a it's in the hare family it's got teeth like a rhinoceros it's a weird cat i mean it's a weird creature. The conies living from North Africa all the way up into the bottom part of Europe, and primarily through the Middle East, some of you may have seen them they're brown and blackish and light tan colored. But if you set a coney down on a rock, you cannot see that thing. Now the conies live in the rock. You're listening to me. The coney lives in the rock. It doesn't venture away from the rock. It eats what the rock provides for it to eat. It does not get away from the rock. It understands that there are birds of prey in the sky and there are snakes and other predators on the ground that would love to eat it, and therefore it doesn't venture away from the rock. The rock is its foundation, the rock is its home, the rock is its protection, and when they go out on the top of the rock to eat, they post little sentries around on the rock, and if they squeal a particular squeal, if they happen to see anything that looks halfway dangerous, they don't question the person that squealed about it, They just run for protection just as soon as they hear the warning sound. In other words, they're little, they're feeble, but they survive. And the reason they do that is not because they prepare like the ant, but they protect themselves from what's going to ruin and destroy them. And there are many men of God and many Christians who have cut their ministry short, and they have cut their life of service short for the Lord, and they have ruined their testimony because they ventured way too far away from the rock, and when God used a sentry to sound the warning cry about something they ought to be concerned about, they paid it no mind, they paid it no attention, and they did not protect, Theirself, and as a result of not protecting theirself, they cut them their their life and ministry short by not protecting themselves. I have been at this thing. I've been pastoring for over thirty years now, and I look back at at those that have washed up on the shores of destruction because of their sin. Pastor uh, Allison and I know a man. And we, we have preached with a man and, and Pastor Allison had pastored a man who got into sin and his life was completely cut short as a young man. A man who had ability and power and strength and might and an ability to communicate. Cut short because he didn't protect himself. The point I'm trying to get across to us is we may be small, but don't let the, your smallness, your littleness, uh, let you think that God can't use you and therefore you don't take measures to protect yourself. Thirdly, he talks about the locust. He said the locusts, they don't have a king. They don't have anybody really leading the charge, but he said, here's what they do, do. They go forth by bands. So so the coney protects itself. The ant prepares itself. What does the locust do for us? Well, the locust, if he's by himself and he jumps and he flies, he has no precision to his flight. You do not know where he's going to land. You don't know how he's going to land. He may splat into a wall and fall to the grass. If he's one locust in your garden, you don't think a whole lot about it. But when the locust... Put themselves together in a swarm with others that have the same heart, the same direction, the same desire, the same appetite. They fly together like a precision flying machine. Their ability to consume. Is unbelievable. If they ever land in a field, you know that they have been there and they have been known to capsize sailing vessels in the Sea of Galilee because of the vastness of their weight when they are together. The point I'm making is very simply this. The locust doesn't mean much by itself, but when it partners together with others who have the same heart, the same mind, the same direction. What they are able to do is phenomenal. Now, the last one is the the, the, the little spider. The Bible says of our spider, it uses the 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 uh, the pronoun her to describe the gender of the spider, and this is reflecting upon what the Bible's already said about the other little creatures. It said that the ants are feeble, they're, they're, they're not much, and the, the conies are feeble, they're not strong, and they're not they're feeble and they're and, and the locust is not much. And so in the usage of the feminine pronoun her, it's allowing us to see the weakness of this creature. It's the spider, she. Now notice where she's at. She's not in the barn. Notice that in the text. The Bible doesn't say that our spider, this girl, is in the barn or in the in the, in the woodshed or in the corner of the pauper's cabin. The Bible said she's in a king's palace. And this gives us the indication and idea that she has made her way into a place where she is not welcomed. She's not welcomed here. She is in a place that is immaculate. She is in a place that has caretakers that walk through this home every day to make sure that it is clean and spotless. She climbs into a corner, she spins her web, this is her purpose, this is what God made her to be, who God made her to be, and as she climbs into that place, the lady comes through, sweeps her down. The little spider, then she finds herself another place, she climbs up, she does it all over again, only to be swept down again. She continues to do that because it's in her. She's going to do it until she can't do it anymore in other words, the lesson that can be learned from this is the ant prepares himself, the cony protects himself, the locust partners himself, but the spider survives, succeeds, because she perseveres with herself. You cannot do anything if you do not think you can. And you cannot do anything if you quit. There is no way to accomplish anything for God if you quit. Let me give you a piece of advice, and please don't ever forget it. Never quit today. Always wait until tomorrow. Always wait until tomorrow. And when it's tomorrow, it will be today. Never quit today. Now note with me, if you don't view yourself as God views yourself you'll never accomplish anything. May I give you a piece of Scripture again, and let me, let me leave you with it tonight. Go with me to the book of Judges if you don't mind. I want to look at a man tonight in the book of Judges, and I want to share this with you, and, and I don't want to belabor you. I know you've worked hard uh, this evening, and I know that uh, uh, you're no doubt weary. Now, in the book of Judges, chapter 6, is where I want to be tonight, and I, I want to share this with you fast. In the book of Judges, chapter six and chapter number seven, and then of course I'll look on over again in chapter eight in a moment. But in in this passage of scripture, we got a man by the name of Gideon. Now Gideon is living in a bad day. The Midianites have come in and they're they're overcoming the nation of Israel. They have other compatriots with them Israel is in a bad way and Gideon is threshing wheat in a wine press in verse number 11 and when the bible said that this angel came to him that's where he find him threshing wheat in a wine press now when the angel looks at Gideon notice the statement that he immediately makes to Gideon in verse number 12 the bible says the angel of the lord appeared unto him and said the lord is with thee thou mighty man of valor In other words, Gideon, I'd like to address you in the way that God sees you. I want to talk to you, Gideon, about how God views you. God views you, Gideon, not the way you view yourself. God views you as a mighty man of valor. Gideon retorts, if that's so, where is God in all this? Where's the miracles? What has happened? And he begins to murmur and gripe and complain and talk negatively about God. The angel doesn't even respond to him. The angel responds to him once again with how God views Gideon. Look at verse number 14. He said, Gideon, go in this thy might, and thou shalt save Israel from the hand of the Midianites... Have not I sent thee? To which he again retorts. He said, I'm from a poor family. I'm the least in the poor family. In other words, I'm too small. I'm too small. To which the angel said, I will be with thee, and thou shalt smite the Midianites as one man. In other words, Gideon is a fearful individual who does not see himself the way God sees him. Do you realize that you are seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus? Do you realize that you are literally already in heaven just waiting to get there? Do you realize that the same Spirit that indwelt Jesus the Christ is indwelling you, the Holy Spirit of God, even Jesus Himself said this to His disciples when He left. He said, greater works than I have done shall you do. Now God sees us differently than we see ourselves. We see ourselves as insignificant. We see ourselves as small. We see ourselves as accomplishing nothing and can accomplish nothing. But the Word of God, the truth, as pastor spoke to us about tonight, must be the litmus test for everything. The Bible said, Greater is he that's in us than he that's in the world. And according to Romans 8 and verse 29, verse 28 said, We know all things work together for good to them that love God. The problem with that verse is, all things don't work together for good for all Christians. It works together for good to them that love God. And as pastor has already so aptly put, the way we know you and I love God is by keeping His commandments. So I am going to have things work together for good in my life no matter what I am putting my hands to if it's for the glory of God. It's going to work together for good, whatever it is, if I am obedient to God and I love Him. Now then the verse 29 said this, For whom He did foreknow, He also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of His Son. In other words, the work of the Holy Spirit through the Holy Scripture is to make me like Jesus. Now Jesus wasn't a big man, small man. Jesus did not do a grand work in a big place. Jesus did a grand work in a little small place and He did His Father's will and God the Father took the church and spread that great work where He wanted it to go by the hands of those who would be obedient to Him. Here's the point. Jesus didn't get out around the whole world. His little ministry was in a little place. He had probably 500 uh, 500 converts at the end of His ministry. Because we know according to 1 Corinthians 15 that at his resurrection the Bible said he was seen of above 500 brethren at one time so at least had 500. But he didn't have this massive ministry. He had a small ministry in a small place that made a big impact. Why? Because he did the will of the Father. You see, it doesn't matter whether I'm in some town in Pennsylvania or some redneck town in South Carolina where I am at and where I live when I do the work of God as God has called me to do in my small place for the glory of God. God has a way of taking that and accomplishing great things for His glory so that I don't get any glory. Now, why could Gideon not do what God saw him as because of what he's dealing with. When you're threshing wheat, you got your Bible. I'll show you four or five verses. When you're threshing wheat in a wine press, you're dealing with an issue called fear. You're dealing with fear. Now then God says to Gideon, Here's what I want you to do. This, that, and the other. And when Gideon realized that he had been speaking to the angel of the Lord, the Bible said in verse 22 that Gideon perceived that he was an angel of the Lord. And Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for because I have seen an angel of the Lord face to face, Gideon thought he was going to die. In other words, Gideon had received marching orders from God, and he thought it was going to kill him. He was afraid of it. Then God tells Gideon, I want you to go chop down that grove that's outside your father's house out there. And Gideon did that, but he took ten men with him, and according to verse 27, he went and he cut it down at night, according to verse 27, because he feared. Gideon was afraid. When you get down to Gideon putting out the fleece, The only reason Gideon put out the fleece was because he was afraid of what God had already said. Then he comes down to the choosing of these men. 32,000 show up and the very first thing that Gideon says is, everybody that's scared go to the house. 22,000 leave him. Now why does that happen? Because according to the book of Deuteronomy... When you bring men to the war, if they are afraid, they cannot stay there. They've got to leave. Deuteronomy chapter number 20, those individuals have got to go home. He was just obeying what the Word of God had to say. And he walks off and leaves him with 10,000 men. Now, after that takes place, there is going to be this drinking business, and you've got 300 men, 301 if you count Gideon. And then God says this to Gideon. So Gideon... You went and cut down that grove, right? And I blessed you. Yes, sir. You've accepted what I told you because, I mean, I, I, you know, you were afraid, but I, I, I did the fleece business, right? Yes, sir. You sent home the fearful men, right? Yes, sir. There's still one fearful man i got to deal with. What are you talking about? Gideon, if you're still afraid, I want you to take your servant, Fura, and I want you to walk with him down to the edge of the camp of the Midianites, and I'm going to give you a word. And the Bible said that Gideon, in verse 10 it said, But if thou fear to go down, go thou with Furah thy servant down to the host, and thou shalt hear. And the Bible said that he went down with Führer, which means Gideon's still afraid. Gideon's dealing with fear in his life. Now why is he dealing with fear? Because he can't see himself as God sees him. And you can't see yourself as God sees you until you learn to spend communing intimate time with God and His Word. Now now listen to this real quickly. What does fear do for me? Well, Jesus made this statement right before He left. He's talking to, um, he's talking to the apostles. And those are the 11 most powerful men on the top side of God's earth. They have apostolic gifts to be able to heal sick and raise dead. And Jesus said this, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In other words, if Jesus is saying to the eleven most powerful men, Let not your heart be troubled, then it stands to reason there's, there's the possibility, if Jesus said it, that they can be troubled. And then Jesus, on in verse number 27 or so of chapter number 14, said this. He said, He said, My peace I leave with you, Not as the world giveth, give unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. He warned them twice, and in just a short few hours, they are running for fear. And they are the most powerful men on the top side of the earth. If those men could be captivated by fear and not see themselves as God sees them, so can you and I. Now in consideration of that, so what does fear do for me? So fear is a possibility. I've got to give it that. Fear is a possibility for my life. But fear robs me of my peace. My peace I leave with you. If I am in fear, I am not living in peace. But then the Apostle Paul said this to Timothy. He, he made this statement over there in 2 Timothy 1.7. For God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power, loving, and a sound mind. Fear is a spirit. He said God's not given us a spirit of fear, but He's given us power. So if I'm living in fear, I'm not living in power. He said, and of love, if I'm living in fear, I'm not living with with a passionate life toward Christ. And of a sound mind, if I'm living in fear, I am not living perceptively with the mind of Christ working in me about who I am, who I'm being conformed to, what I can do through Christ. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me so I've lost my peace and my power, my passion, my perception, and then it's a prison. Romans 8.15, the Apostle Paul again made this statement about fear. He said very simply this, that we've received the spirit of adoption. We've not received the spirit of fear. He said, you've not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry "Abba, Father. In other words, he said... Fear is living in bondage. Fear is imprisoning. Now, I want to give you a terrible verse. This is a horrible verse. You, you got a moment. Go with me to um, Job 3. Job 3. This is an awful verse. Job 3, 25. I, Let me Let me jump over there. I want to share this verse with you. And I, I want you to grasp it and wrap your head and your heart around this verse. And and I want to I want to give you this, and I'm I'm just about finished. And we're going to go back over there to 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 judges here in just a minute. I want you to look down with me in verse 25. Now now, Job's three friends were not bad men; they were good men. Now they tried to defend God. God didn't need any defending. As Pastor Allison said in the message I was listening to him preach today on online, he said they give Truth about God, but not truth about God in regard to Job's situation. Now, these men were not bad guys. They sat for seven days around Job and fasted. And on the outside, Job was sitting in the in the, in the elements. They sat with him for seven days and didn't say a word, but mourned with him. I don't have... I don't have one friend that would fast for seven days and still stay at home in the comfort of their home let alone sit outside with me he had three men that were willing to do that and they never said anything negative toward Job until Job opened his mouth now notice what Job said, this is his testimony not mine, I'm reading nothing into this, verse 25 Job said, the thing which I greatly feared is coming to me and that which I was afraid of is come unto me. The thing which I greatly feared is come upon me, and that which I was afraid of is come unto me. Job's testimony is this. I have been living scared about some things, and what's just happened in my life is a fulfillment of what I've been afraid of. Job's words, that that I was fearing... I'm now dealing with. I was fearing losing my family. I was fearing losing my finances. I was fearing losing my financial, my physical health. And now I'm living out what I have feared. If the implications of that verse are true, Brother Starnes, then my fears have the ability of predicting the future I'm going to face. That's why. It is so important to trust in the living God who is the Savior of all men, especially those that believe. Trusting God with all of our heart. Leaning not unto our own understanding. Go back to Judges chapter number 8. and I'm finished. I'm done. In Judges chapter number 8, now remember Gideon and all this fear business in his life. Now Gideon is a small man in a small place Gideon is fixing to do a grand work for God, a phenomenal work for God. He can't see it. He can't see what God wants out of his life. He can't see what God wants to do with him because he's captivated by his humanity or his depravity. Fear is a sin. And so he is captivated by an emotion. He's captivated by a problem much like what Pastor Allison preached to us about tonight. He is uninterested in truth. He's interested in what he feels. This is how he feels. And now God steps up and says, I got bigger plans for you than your feelings. I see you in a light that you don't see yourself. And so Gideon deals with, I'm afraid. I'm afraid. I'm afraid. I'm afraid. I'm afraid. I'm afraid. And then Gideon gets it. He gets it. And boy, you don't get any more bold than to walk in with three hundred and one men against over a hundred thousand soldiers with a lamp and a and, and a and a a a a light and a trumpet, and that's about all you've got. And then you chase them down and whoop them all. I mean. You finally have gotten it. But let's look at the danger of not seeing our small self as God sees us. Look at chapter 8 verse 20 and I'm done. In chapter 8 verse 20 when the enemy has been accosted and it's time to annihilate the enemy it's time to get total victory The Bible said that Gideon, he said to Jether, his firstborn, Up! Get up, boy! Kill him! Slay him, son! Kill him dead! But the youth drew not his sword, for he feared, because he was yet a youth. He didn't see himself the way his daddy saw him. Now let me ask you a question. Where do you think he got that fear business from? Where do you think he learned that emotional behavior that crippled him in a time when his name could have been written in the grandeur of the scripture as a giant of a man in victory and valor? Where do you think he learned that at? You see, Dad, I... I think it's imperative for you and I to get this. When we don't see ourselves as God sees us, and we don't see our purpose as God sees our purpose, and we are unwilling because of our lack of vision to see what God sees and no desire to live in the victory that God has for us, What we don't realize is the ultimate ramification of that, which is sad, is we are passing on to our children a very anemic faith. And if they make it through their generation, it's not likely that your grandchildren will live in victory. And it's not likely that your great-grandchildren will ever be found in the house of God. There's a little man in the book of Jeremiah, I believe it's chapter 35. His name's Jonadab. He's the son of Rechab. Now there's a Gentile bunch of people. They, they were very nomadic. They just lived in tents and just got by the best they could. But one thing they did do was they taught their children well. One day Jeremiah sends out a word and he said, Hey, uh, get that whole house of the Rechabites, get them on up in here. And so, they went and they got to the house of the Rechabites, young and old, and they brought them to the house of God. I'm sure they were inquisitive as to what's going on. They set them around a big table, and Jeremiah said, bring those pots of wine in here. And they began to bring that wine in there, and they set those pots of wine on the table. Bring them goblets in here. They brought those chalices in and lined them up in front of all of the sons of Rechab. And Jeremiah looks at the elders of the family and he said pour you wine boys and i want to see all of you drink it god told me to bring you in here and i want to see you drink that wine and one of the elders of the family stood up and he said uh, with all due respect sir all due respect i know you're the man of god and all but we're just a little family a little nomadic family but our daddy taught us we don't drink wine and I don't care who you are, and I don't care what this place is, this ain't right, and we're not going to go against our daddy. Daddy raised us better than that. And daddy told us some other things too, and he went through the things his daddy had taught him about where to live and how to live. And Do you know they've been doing that for 300 years? They had passed that down for 300 years. Hundred years to their children and their children and their children's children and their children's children's children were still doing what the old man said now the only way that's going to happen is for daddy and mama to see themselves as God sees them and say I'm not in a big place Nobody's ever going to know my name. That doesn't matter. But for the glory of God, we shall fill our place and do the best we can to bring honor and glory to Him and be satisfied with that. And what you produce in days to come will be worth the effort. Let's stand up. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to contact us, please write us at P.O. Box 126-541, Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, 17112. And visit our website at www.svbcPA.org. Until next time.